0: Will be in Luke 16, 1 through 8. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you no longer can be a manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. I decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people will receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, "A 100 measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, "A 100 measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of the light. So the word Lord, you may be seated. All right, thanks a
1: lot, Ken, and thank you, Michael, and um, most of us know that Michael really built the Connect desk. Ken was only supervising, so anyway, uh, good morning, Redemption, Uh, glad that you are here this morning. Uh, How about that reading this morning? That's, that's an interesting passage, isn't it? And I know that there are many people, I just know from experience that there are many people who have been in church for a long, long time and are actually surprised that that's even in the Bible, that this parable that Jesus teaches is in the Bible. It's known as the parable of the shrewd manager or the parable of the dishonest manager if you turn your in your Bibles to Luke 16, we're going to get there in a little while. I have a lot of introductory work to do, but uh, just to give you an idea, uh, last week I was with a seminary graduate, somebody who has a Master of Divinity in, uh, from seminary, and he knows that on this particular Sunday that uh, all the redemption churches are taking a week off from the series that we've been doing in the book of Acts, and we all get to do whatever we think is important or that God has led us to do. I had another message written several weeks ago, and God really said, no, save that for Labor Day weekend. You really need to do this this week. okay, so I'm going to do it. And I told him, I said, I'm going to do the parable of the shrewd manager. And he laughed and kind of looked at me like I was making a joke. And then he saw that I was serious, and he said, what is that? It's the seminary graduate. I won't tell you what seminary, but he's a seminary graduate. He said, what is that? And I said, well, you know, in Luke chapter 16, there's a really famous parable at the end, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, right? Oh, yeah, 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 sure. He said, it's the parable at the beginning of the chapter. Oh, yes. Yeah, I, yeah, I do know about that parable, he said, but I just, I don't get it, so I've never really taken a close look at it. This parable makes people uncomfortable. Uh, let me give you a great quote from Rick Lawrence, who is an author a, a professor, and a pastor. He writes this about this parable. Did Jesus really tell a story about a conniving jerk? Well, yes. And even more to the point, Jesus uses his parable to tell us that we are sorely deficient in something that people of the world have in great abundance. He's telling us that this deficiency is not good for the kingdom of God. Jesus's parable of the shrewd manager startles and offends us like a belching debutante at a tea party. I love that sentence. We expect our Christianity and our Messiah, for that matter, to conform to the image we have worked so hard to mold for him. We have, as A.W. Tozer observes, taken the Jesus of the Bible and made him a very well-behaved God. The manager in Jesus' parable is unsavory in every way, and it makes no sense that our gracious, well-behaved, soft-spoken, clean-cut Savior is telling us to think like this guy. But that's what he's doing. So what is this about? Uh, like I said, we're, we're all doing a different sermon this morning or something different in all the redemption churches. This is a passage that frankly doesn't get preached on very much in churches because it's hard. It's, it, it creates tension. So happy Memorial Day weekend but it has so much application for us today. As I wrestle, for instance, with the issues and the the challenges that we have with the gospel in the marketplace, living all of life, all for Jesus, this is a parable that should help us, but not just in the marketplace. We truly are all about all of life is all for Jesus, truly are. And and so it's not just in the marketplace, but everywhere. But I'll tell you, that word shrewd, shrewd, it kind of disorients us, right? In fact, I think we have a very negative view of the word. Another pastor recently recorded a video at a very large Christian fundraiser that he was invited to, and he did this for research. And he asked dozens of longtime Christians for their definition of the word shrewd. And he compiled those based on the most popular answers, and here's what he found conniving, sneaky, sly smoke-filled back room, mean, premeditated cleverness, old man Potter from It's a Wonderful Life, crafty and manipulative, good at getting money but not very happy. That's what we think of shrewd generally. So what is the definition for shrewd that we're using here? Shrewdness is the expert application of leverage at just the right time and the right place. That definition is neutral. It's not evil, and it's not good. Shrewdness, like money or just about anything else, can be used for good, and it can be used for evil. And Jesus uses this word. But it is nearly impossible for us to keep from infecting the word with negativity. But read your New Testaments. Jesus does use this word. Many of us just don't realize that he uses this word because most translators prefer to take this word and interpret it as wise. See, we like that word wise, right? Very positive connotations, shrewd negative connotations. So we want to interpret it, most of us, as wise for obvious reasons. Shrewd makes us uncomfortable. But there's actually another Greek word that really is wise. It's the Greek word sophos. And that is not the word that is used in Luke 16. It's not sophos. It's the word phronomos, which is shrewd. Other definitions of this word are prudent, intelligent. And here's one that's interesting. Mindful of one's own interests. It doesn't sound very Christian-like. It's used here in Luke chapter 16, verse 8, in this parable. It's also used somewhere else, where you're probably more familiar with it, but you don't realize it's that word, again, because of the way translators have translated it. It's used in Matthew 10:16. Jesus says to his disciples, I send you out as sheep among wolves. Be as phronomos, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves now most of us know that that verse as be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves most translations including the official translation of redemption church the esv translates that word as wise not shrewd but i did a very long search and i found for instance the living bible and i know some of you scholars are going to be wait a minute that's a paraphrase it's really not a word for word well just hang in there with me But the Living Bible translates that word as wary. The message, Eugene Peterson, who knows a thing or two about Greek, he he only reads his New Testament in Greek. How many here do that besides Cody Kimmel? He does, okay? All right? He uses the word cunning. And if you're looking for scholarly more scholarly translations. The New American Standard Bible and the New International Version, both very scholarly, academic, substantial translations, they use the word shrewd. So based on my study, I would suggest that that's the right translation. And it's not only fair to say, but I would say it's accurate to say that based on um, the, 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 the words that Jesus used in his ministry that we have recorded in the New Testament and the words available for him to use, he meant to say way more than just wise in Matthew 10, 16. Otherwise, he would have used the word sophos. If he wanted wise, he would have used sophos, not shrewd or wary or cunning. So he used phronimos. And then in verse 17, context is very important. In verse 17 of Matthew, right after verse 16, what does he say? He says, be on guard against men. Be on guard against men. Jesus wants us aware. He wants us thinking. He wants us alert. He wants us perceptive with an edge. Because the world is a hard place. And sinners sin. People sin. Tyler Johnson is kind of famous for saying... That if sin were blue, we would all be smurfs. <laughs> and that's the world we live in. See, most of us we just kind of avoid this conversation because it makes so many of us uncomfortable, like many of you right now. When is this gonna be over with? The problem is we're Christian, we're just supposed to be nice. We're just supposed to be nice. Nice is good, but you gotta mix in a little shrewdness to make your nice better. Okay? It, it, We think if we're just nice, then everything's going to work out. Isn't it possible that Jesus' teaching is just a tad deeper than that? Be nice and everything will work out? I think it's a little deeper than that. Now, what I'm about to say, I am not setting Jesus aside in what I'm about to say, as you will see later, because this is all about Jesus. But I want you to think about this. One Christian biblical commentator In the context of the parable of the shrewd manager, he asks this this question. Do you ever wonder why some businesses continue to do well during economic downturns? Why some households in your neighborhood live better with less? Why some missionaries make deeper connections than others in cultures that are hostile to Christianity? Why some marriages are marked by deeper intimacy and joy than others? Why some parents mold more mature, enjoyable, and savvy children. Why some coaches win games that the experts said they might as well not even play. Why some people are closer and, con- and more continually close to Jesus in spirit and in practice. Could it be that one of the ingredients to these successes is shrewdness? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. He's saying it is. And we're going to get to the parable, just, but just another few minutes on context because it's important. I want you to think again about this Matthew 10, 16 verse where the same word "phronimos" is used as in the parable of Luke that we find in Luke. Jesus says, he says, you're sheep. You're sheep. I'm sending you out as sheep. Sheep are weak, vulnerable, and ignorant. And I'm sending you into a world with wolves who are, as Paul says in his letters, children of the devil. You need to be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Shrewd and innocent. Shrewd as what? Snakes. Now, what what does a snake symbolize in the Bible? Satan. Satan. But as innocent as doves. What does a dove symbolize in the Bible? Holy Spirit. Wow. (laughs) Wow. This is Jesus teaching this. Jesus is saying, know how Satan thinks. Understand his schemes. Study. Because there are many people under his tutelage and under his discipleship. Many more people under his tutelage and his discipleship than under my tutelage and my discipleship. Many, many more. But while knowing how they think, while studying how they work, while knowing how evil works and what the schemes are, don't cross that line into evil yourself. Be so shrewd that you use your understanding to do well against them, but be as innocent as the Spirit. Wow, Frank, that's really hard. Yes, it is. But we are in a battle. We're in a battle. It's called spiritual warfare. That's how the Bible describes it. A little over three years ago, we had a situation at the church in the, old, in the old property where within a month, on two separate occasions, we had somebody completely disrupt services in our church. Completely disrupt. Some of you remember that. And, and I remember after the second time, after the disruption was over, and we were able to take the person and, and, and get them aside and get them the help that we thought that they needed, I got up on the platform afterwards and I said, okay, that's not going to happen again. We understand now what, what we're dealing with. We're going to take the proper uh, corrective measures to make sure that this doesn't happen because services are supposed to be orderly. They are a place, they are a place for God. And, and that, that's not going to happen anymore. But we also need to understand that as a church that proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaims it boldly, we are going to be attacked What happened here this morning is just spiritual warfare and we need to be a a church that's filled with the Spirit and we need to pray because we're in a battle. Oh my goodness, you should have seen the emails come in people were absolutely stunned. They were incredulous. And these were not people who this was their first time or they were new to the church. These were people that had been around a long time that you would think would know. We're a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. And they wrote in and they actually said, you really believe this stuff? You really believe there is a dark realm? You really believe in Satan? You believe in all that devil nonsense? Yes! Yes! Yes, we do. What do you think Paul was doing in the second half of Ephesians chapter 6? Did did he drop some acid and just go crazy and we don't pay attention to that? What was he doing? And and here you go. They left the church. Well, we can't be a part of that. And and it wasn't just one or two people. This wasn't just just a, a weird little exception. Many people left the church over that. You're in a war. I, 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 one of my favorite quotes from a movie is a, a character named Kaiser Soze. Some of you know where I'm going with this. okay? Kevin Spacey, here you go. He said, the greatest trick the devil ever played was making people believe that the devil didn't exist. It's the greatest trick he's ever done. Listen, people who do not think that they're in a war are already defeated and they are dangerous to everybody else who's around them you're already defeated and you're dangerous to other people who are around you first peter chapter 5 verse 8 peter says watch out be aware the devil prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour and if you don't think the devil exists he's going to devour you he's already devoured you this is real stuff And that's why we surrender ourselves to God and pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit, just like the disciples in the book of Acts. We put on the armor of God. And understand, this tension is not new. There's tension here. I get that. It's hard. But this tension is not new. Jesus says, be in the world, but not of the world. Have you ever really meditated on that verse and how difficult that is? Be in the world, but not of the world. Paul says in Ephesians 6, you're living in the world, which means you're in the middle of the schemes of Satan. You need to know the schemes and put on the armor of God and continuously keep putting on the armor of God. You need to be out there, but put on the armor of God. A little bit later in Matthew, in chapter 11, verse 12, Jesus says this, the kingdom of God here on earth suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. I've watched people read that verse out loud, and many people just read it, scratch their heads, and then just move past it because it's so uncomfortable. We're Christians. But Jesus is saying his kingdom, and you and I are under assault, so we need to think, we need to understand, we need to be alert, and actually try to figure some things out. So here's our big idea. Be aware, be ready, think, study, and understand. Be aware, be ready, think, study, and understand. So to the text, Luke chapter 16, let me give you a quick little uh, literary context here. The people listening to this parable are the professional religious people, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and all of them, but his disciples are there too. And Jesus specifically for this parable, he's addressing his disciples, but all the religious people are there listening to it too. And by the way, they don't really care for this parable. And his disciples are a little bit troubled by it, of course. And what he's just finished doing is he just finished in Luke chapter 15 teaching primarily to the Pharisees, teaching the parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. And those parables, the main point is that God saves by grace, not by the law, by piety or morality. And he upset the Pharisees something awful with those parables. Now he turns to a discussion in Luke chapter 16 of wealth and materialism, including closing chapter 16 with the famous parable of Lazarus and the rich man. So this parable of the shrewd manager is, at least in part, about the spell that the world is under when it comes to money and wealth and stuff. So let me reread what Ken read for us, a little comment, and then we'll make some application. Jesus also said to the disciples there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions perhaps another way to think of wasting his possessions is that the manager was skimming he was skimming for personal benefit off of the the master's uh, wealth and he called him and said to him what is this I hear about you Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my manager is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. So what happens here is the master gave the manager, like, 24 hours to clean out his desk. He said, you're not gone right this instant, you can kind of tie up loose ends, bring me an account of your management, and get all that taken care of. You got 24, 48, 48 hours. And so the manager immediately begins to think, well, I'm essentially like Frank Switzer. I'm too old to do any heavy physical work. I can't dig digits. I can't lay brick, okay? And I'm too filled with pride to stand at a freeway exit with a cardboard sign. What am I going to do? So he begins to think about this. He says, verse 4, I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So he comes up with a scheme against his own demise. That's what he's he's doing here. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write down 80. Now some people are like, why 50 and then 80? Uh, Oil was far cheaper in their economy as currency, far cheaper than wheat. So the actual discount that this manager gave these two debtors was very similar. So that might help explain the disparity, uh, the apparent disparity there. And then verse 8. Verse 8, Jesus applies the parable, and he tells his disciples this. And there's actually two points that he, that he gives his disciples, which we'll give you. And, and I know, again, some of you who, who have studied this stuff before, you've heard the saying that there is only one point to every parable that Jesus, um, that Jesus tells. That's not necessarily true. I, Howard Marshall, who, who wrote a commentary on both Luke and the book of Acts, a f- very famous New Testament scholar, he says generally that's a good guideline unless Jesus says there's more than one point to the parable. Then you ought to consider the fact that there might be more than one point to the parable. So there's really two points to this parable, which we'll get to, but here it is in verse 8. The master commended the the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So here are the two points that we should get. Number one, the manager is commended not for his sin, but for how he understands the world. He is commended not for his behavior, but for his thinking. He is commended not for his immorality, but for his shrewdness. We need to understand there's a difference there. And then second of all, Jesus is acknowledging something that I think we all, deep in our hearts, know and believe, but are very uncomfortable acknowledging. It's something that is not so helpful that happens to many people when they become Christians. We become intellectual sloths. We surrender gladly in many cases. People are hysterically happy about this. We we surrender the hard work of thinking deeply about things. And then we get stomped. (laughs) And we wonder why. Jesus says in this parable, if you're going to be a follower of mine, You need to do way more than just wear a t-shirt. Now, I know we sell t-shirts here, and I'm glad you buy them, but you need to do more than just put on the t-shirt. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I want you to think. The Christian faith, the Christian life is not one where you just throw your mind out. It's not. He says, think. You need to study things. And he says, you need to wrestle with the world. Jesus is not condoning immorality, sin, deceit, or lies. He is telling us to use our God-given noggins. Now, there's a t-shirt for you. Jesus says, use your noggin. That would be a good t-shirt. He's telling us not to to live in the pattern of this world, but to be able to swim in that pattern with understanding and discernment. That's what he's saying. Verse 9. Ken didn't read that for for a reason, because this one gets even more confusing for for many people. He, He finishes the parable teaching by saying this. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What? Is Jesus saying we're supposed to buy our salvation? What? Unrighteous wealth? Okay, actually, it's not that difficult if you just study a little bit. Check it out. Here you go. That that term, unrighteous wealth. Here's what Jesus is saying, right and rightly. Whatever economic system we live in, whatever economic system it is, doesn't matter. Communism, socialism, capitalism, uh, lords and serfs, slaves and masters, ASU and U of A, whatever economic system you're living in, it doesn't matter. That economic system is a worldly system. By definition, because it's a worldly system, it is infected with sin and unrighteousness no matter what it is. There's no virtue in that economic system. The number of people who want to hold up different economic systems and say, this is virtuous, don't buy it. It's not, there's not a system, economic system in the world that is filled with virtue. It's filled with humanity, and therefore it's filled with sin and unrighteousness. So all of us, Christians and non-Christians, participate in whatever economic system we're in the midst of. So all of our wealth, all of it, money, stuff is, in this sense, unrighteous. Every bit of it. And Jesus says that the best thing that you can do with your wealth and your stuff, no matter how you gained it, the best thing you can do is to be generous. He's teaching generosity. Don't cling to your stuff as if it's your own. Uh, John, in the book of 1 John chapter 2 He says, do not love the world or anything in the world because the world and its possessions are passing away. And if you love the world and the things in the world, you do not love God. So what Jesus is indicating here is he's saying you need to be generous because your generosity is an indication of where your heart is. Is your heart for God and people or is it for the world and yourself? And the result of your heart being for God and others, even in the midst of shrewdness, is that you will be welcome. Be shrewd and be generous because Jesus is and has been so generous with us. And he was also shrewd. Think about how Jesus achieved the victory of our redemption. Just think about that. How did he do that? On a cross. Was this not shrewd to allow himself to fall right into the hands of the world and do exactly what they told him to do? This was a system of the world and he went with it. He did it the world's way. Was this not shrewd? It was. The answer is yes, it was because the game that the Jews and the Romans were playing with him, they thought it was over when they took him down off that cross and put him in the tomb. They thought the game was over. They had no idea that Jesus was taking that game into overtime. Three overtime periods later, Jesus busts out of that tomb, and he doesn't give us a sudden death victory. He gives us what? A sudden sudden resurrection victory. Jesus achieved our salvation by generously giving himself and shrewdly doing it the way the world thought that they were going to win he's shrewd and he is generous i know some of you are like that's really hard to hear that jesus was shrewd well let me kind of wrap up with this here's here here are some principles about biblical shrewdness that we learn from this parable that we can apply and and by the way these principles should be applied in context we need to have a context first before we can start to apply these principles. But they're helpful principles to remember. Here's number one. Study how things work. Pay attention. Study how things work. When Jesus says, be innocent, it does not mean to be naive, uninformed, unprepared, and oblivious. That's not what he's saying. Uh, Jim Ron, the, the, the Christian entrepreneur, writes this. Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is poverty, ignorance is tragedy, ignorance is devastation, and ignorance is illness. So pay attention. Here's the second one. And the second essential, the second principle is the most essential principle. It's the most essential. The rest of this doesn't work without this principle. Have an attitude of dependence on Jesus for your shrewdness. Our, Our wisdom, our thinking, our understanding, our application and our conduct must always come in submission to Jesus. We are the branch. He is the vine. This does not work without our submission to him in everything, mind, body, and heart. Biblical heres I hope this connects with some people. I think biblical wisdom, I'm sorry, biblical shrewdness is kind of like playing jazz. It's not composed. It's not painting by the numbers. Instead, what you do is you study the basics of a situation and then you apply Holy Spirit-filled instinct. That's really hard because that leaves, that, that, that leaves room for so much interpretation. I know, but that's what Jesus calls us to. And then principle number three. Listen to both the world and the Holy Spirit. Listen to both the world and the Holy Spirit in readiness. In readiness to either act Or in readiness to stand down. Sometimes it's shrewd to just stand down, but listen in readiness. So constantly ask questions such as, what does the world want? What is the shrewd, wise, discernible, and godly path amid that, and how do I navigate that tension? Malcolm Gladwell, a few years ago, just a few years ago, wrote a great book called David and Goliath. He's one of my favorite authors. He's written a number of best-selling books. If you're not reading Malcolm Gladwell, you might consider it. But he wrote this book called David and Goliath. I think we have a picture. Yeah, there it is. Okay. Um, And in his opening chapter, Gladwell studied how shrewd David was in his battle with Goliath, how shrewd he was. And that story of David and Goliath is kind of a metaphor for Matthew 10.16. You're sheep among wolves. You need to be shrewd and innocent. One of Gladwell's points was that David recognized and understood Goliath's strength and weapons. His strengths and his weapons. So what were his strengths and weapons? He was big. I mean, he was huge. He was strong. He had Matt Gale guns, okay? And he knew how to grunt, Urgh! he had all the, and then he had you know, he just had everything, you know, the helmet, the armor, everything. I mean, he's like, forget about it. I don't want to go up against this guy, okay? So what David shrewdly determined is that it would be suicide to use the best weapons of his adversary, and then shrewdly discerned, That if Goliath has strengths, he must have a weakness somewhere or a blind spot somewhere. And it's probably related to his strengths. And he did. Goliath was so big that he couldn't move. He couldn't move very fast. So David took off all the armor, got his slingshot, and nailed him. He used his strengths to understand his weakness, and then shrewdly won that battle. Now, he was in submission to and filled with God as he did it. But he thought about it. He used his noggin. That's what David did. Do you think the apostle Paul wasn't shrewd? Really, think about Paul's life. We're going to spend four more months in the book of Acts, and pretty much all we're going to see is Paul... Filled with and in submission to the Holy Spirit, shrewdly working his way through the world. Planting churches, winning debates, seeing people saved, and leaving this incredible legacy. Paul's background in the Hebrew scriptures, he was an expert in the Old Testament, enabled him to shrewdly understand and apply those scriptures to the gospel and to Jesus in his context. Paul was shrewd, but he was innocent. Here you go. Paul was old man potter filled with the Holy Spirit. That's who he was. Uh, For 30 years, I've had a very, very good friend. Uh, We're very close. He's an attorney, and he's a Christian, and he's a deacon at his church. And this guy wins. He just wins. He is is the definition of shrewd, the, the expert application of leverage at the right time in the right place. And I bring this up, frankly, because in church world, I think that attorneys kind of get a bad rap. We just assume they're filled with evil. We do. How can you be an attorney and be a Christian? Well, you could say that about just about any, uh, by the way. But we especially pick on lawyers, I think. Listen, my friend knows how the world works. And here's what he says about it. He says, you can sum up the world in one saying. They are trying to get you. Be ready. (laughs) That's what he says. And he works shrewdly, yet he protects innocence. He's done a couple things for me as an attorney over the years, and and he did it shrewdly. And it was really hard work, but he did it shrewdly. I was able to get the results that I think that we needed to get, but we were able to also maintain our faith and our innocence in the midst of it. It was really hard work because we had to think about things you got to think outside of this spectrum, outside of this box to be able to do it. But I've also noticed that there's a fantasy that some Christians have. You're in a difficult marketplace situation, and so here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to be nice, because if I'm nice, then they're going to do whatever I want because of my niceness, okay? And because I'm nice and they do whatever I want want, and I get everything I want, um, they're not going to screw me over, okay? And, and, then, and then because I'm nice and I get everything I want, and they don't screw me over, then they're going to come to know Jesus. And that's, and that's generally a recipe for losing in case you haven't noticed. It just doesn't really work. How many times have you not gotten what you wanted and they don't care about Jesus in the end? That happens a lot, right? Be shrewd, innocent but shrewd. Last three years, I have had way more of these conversations than I had in the first 17 years of vocational ministry and here they are, it's corporations or employers making promises, often in writing, promises to their employees, and then going back on those promises, not executing. Some of you right now are shaking your head, you know what I'm talking about. And I'm not, ta- I'm not talking about little stuff, I'm talking about life-changing stuff. I'm not talking about an employer said, hey, uh, uh, okay, I'll let you have that Friday off so you can be with your spouse or whatever, and, and then they, they said I couldn't have Friday off. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about big, life-changing stuff. And almost everyone I talk to comes to me and says it, and describes it in terms like this. There's this spectrum and they're only living on the ends of the spectrum. They're going, um, I'm either going to sue the snot out of them or I'm just going to lay down and pretend it never happened. And my question is always, what about something outside of the realm of that spectrum where you actually think and try to find some spots of leverage where, where we can apply leverage shrewdly and get what you still want but also make it be right? And you don't have to involve all this other stuff. What about that? Okay? Think. Pray. All right. I know you're tired. I'm tired. Last one, though. Last one. Several years ago, Jackie and I moved from Glendale to North Phoenix for obvious reasons. Anyway, um, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) Kidding. We enjoyed our time in Glendale. Uh, We had two years left on our mortgage on the house in Glendale. We always get 15-year mortgages. And we had two years left on our mortgage, so we had lots and lots of equity. And when you, the truth is that generally when you move from Glendale to Phoenix, you're going to pay more per square foot for a house. That's just the way it is, substantially more. So we finally found a house that we wanted to buy, and we had our, our uh, agent with us, a Christian guy, by the way. Our agent with us, and we're writing the offer. And as we're writing the offer, we said, we're putting $200,000 down on the new, essentially the equity from the house in Glendale. We're moving over and putting it down on the house in Phoenix. He was absolutely incredulous. Here you go. He said, you realize they will loan you 110% of the value of your house. You realize that, don't you? Do you guys remember those days? Remember those days? Yeah. Okay. So they say, you, you'll, they'll loan you. Take that 200000 and have fun. Live it up, go on a -a once-in-a-lifetime trip, buy a boat. He's he's telling us this. And Jackie and I looked at him and went, uh no. That's the way the world would do it, but that's not shrewd. Three years later, you know what happened, right? The bottom fell out. And we still had equity in our house, comfortable equity. And we had a smaller payment that we were never worried about being able to make in the mi- So who's having fun now? That boat doesn't look so good anymore, right? And, and we did that in the midst of the neighborhood, literally partly fell down around us, as people just abandoned their homes. and they collapsed. It was an, it was an absolutely amazing thing. Guys, here you go. Here's my clothes. Jesus knows what he's doing. Jesus knows what he's doing. And I think that the the one who created this world, the one who rose from the dead, and the one who wrote this book, we ought to listen to him because my guess is that he's got insight and wisdom that we've never even considered before. That's my close. Listen to Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do mostly love the fact that you're willing to challenge our presuppositions and that you're willing to tell us what's true and what's right, even when it's uncomfortable. So God, I just pray that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit and we would be able to apply this to our lives. Uh, God, that we would be shrewd, but we would also remain innocent. That's hard work, I know, but I pray that we'd be able to do that. I pray this for all of us in Jesus' name. Amen.